on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How the hell are you? A flying solo for one more week. A special podcast today. Now, you will remember maybe about 18 months ago, we caught up with Wayne Swan. We went up to Brisbane and spent some time with him and spoke to him about what it would be like if there was a change of government, what we would need for workers, for unions, in the event that a new Labor government was elected. Well, that has all come to pass, as we know, because just a couple of weeks ago, Anthony Albanese and Labor were elected and now sit on the government benches. So I thought we'd head back to Brizzy and catch up with a man that many of you know simply as Swanee, former Deputy Prime Minister, Treasurer of Australia from December 2007 to June 2013, along with Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, he sort of guided Australia through the global financial crisis to the point where even the Australian newspaper at one stage referred to him as the world's greatest treasurer. Uh, he has that poster still up in his office. It sort of has a, a wonderfully black human irony about it, given what that newspaper is like these days. Anyway, got up to Brisbane and I thought, okay, let's talk to Swanee about now that Anthony Albanese and Labor have been elected, what are the challenges that a new Labor government faces to steer the economy through a crisis? Because we know that Wayne's done that in the past and he's done it better than most. So I sat down with Wayne a couple of weeks ago in his Brisbane home to talk about the challenges ahead to make sure that Labor delivers on its promises to workers and to unions about secure work, better pay and a better future for us all. Let's hear it. This is Wayne Swan on the job. Wayne Swan, welcome back to On The Job. Good to be here. Last time I was here with you in the office, it was uh, a year out from the election and we were talking about all the changes that needed to happen. I just want to get a sense of what your last year was like leading up to the election and do you realise as we got close to the election that there was going to be a change of government? There's no question that we learned an enormous amount from our loss three years ago and uh, through our campaign review, we changed completely our approach to campaigning But I also think we changed our emphasis in terms of policy presentation and putting forward a case for change, which was one that was more compelling for a broader section of the electorate. Some people described uh, the government's agenda as a small target strategy. It was no such thing. It was a smart strategy. And some of the policies were very big targets because they were very popular. So we managed to go through a campaign where we were on the right side of history when it came to climate change and climate action, on the right side of history when it came to new measures to protect integrity, on the right side of history when it came to economic opportunity and particularly the need to give ordinary workers a fair go in the wage system. I don't think a small target strategy is one which has a at its heart, an enormous climate transition in place for working people that argues for decent and fair wages and working conditions for working people and integrity in government. It was a pretty big policy agenda, but it was one that the Conservatives found very hard to get stuck into. So you're a political animal, I know. You still love politics. How did you go during election day and election? Just from a personal perspective, you're not a candidate anymore. You've got to sort of sit and watch from the sidelines. I know you're involved in the party still, but are you a nervous watcher on election night? How is it for you? 
No, I've been too, through too many elections <laughs> to be a nervous election watcher. I've actually lost a seat in Parliament uh, in an election way back in, in 1996. Uh, and probably one of the most devastating nights uh, was um, the night that Bill Shorten mm. lost the election before, before this one. I was confident we were going to do well, but I wasn't super confident that the majority would necessarily be there on the night. And in fact, halfway through the night, I was talking to a number of my colleagues and saying, you know, just, you know, we haven't won it yet. We haven't won it yet. And in fact, we only won it when the West Australian results came in. But what was apparent was the massive loss suffered by the Liberals. And I think Labor's majority and the swing to Labor was one that delivered a majority government with a decent majority of the vote. What gets lost in so much of this post-election analysis about primary votes is that there was a majority vote for Labor in this election, mm -hmm. which produced a majority of seats, which is what a fair electoral system based on one vote, one value, and single-member constituencies can deliver. So the notion that somehow there is an illegitimacy uh, in the overall result for Labor is, is just nonsense. I'm constantly stunned by the number of uh, so-called qualified political journalists who fail to realise that there was a realignment in this election, a substantial realignment, and that realignment was on the conservative side of politics. Uh, and Labor not only won uh, many of our traditional areas well, we also won large slabs of the middle ground of Australian politics. There were also some areas of concern for Labor uh, in this result, and they're ones that we will consider very closely as we go through and review the overall result over the next year or so. But there was a Labor majority with a strong Labor vote in large parts of the country, including in suburban Brisbane where we are now, which has been um, lost, if you like, in some of the rewriting of history that we've seen since election night. The uh, first few weeks of government, you've been there. It must be really exciting. We know that Labor doesn't get elected from opposition very often. You were part of one government with Kevin Rudd in 2007 that did. Just how head-spinning is it when you first have to, you know, move across the, to the other side of Parliament House and get your head around being government? Give us, give us a sense of what it's like to try to adjust from being in opposition and, and taking on the role that you did, say, as, as Treasurer of the country. Well, in, in, in our case, in late 2007, when we were elected, we hadn't uh, been on the government benches since 1996. So it had been a relatively lengthy period out of power and very few of us if any, actually, who uh, went into government in 2007 had previous ministerial experience. So that long period out meant that there were a whole lot of newies going into <laughs> government who'd never been uh, ministers and had never been part of the apparatus of government. And that was incredibly uh, exciting and exhilarating for us. So as I, I watched a, a whole bunch of, uh, of newbies, if you like, being sworn in, I was incredibly excited for them, for their families, but most importantly for the country because we've got a great bunch of new ministers. But the thing about this government is that a significant portion of it has been in government before. So that makes the transition from opposition to government so much easier than it was for people like myself when I became uh, Treasurer back in 2007. And although I'd been in Parliament on and off for a number of years prior to that, I'd never served uh, as a government minister. We're so fortunate that this Labor government has, has a Prime Minister, 
has a deputy prime minister, has a treasurer, has a foreign minister, and the list goes on, who has previously served in a government and served at the highest level of government. And by that, I mean sitting on the key subcommittees of cabinet, whether it's the expenditure review committee, whether it's um, the intelligence committees, uh, national security committees. We've got people who've been there and done that. And the consequence of that is that they are able to really put things in place somewhat more quickly than we would have been able to have done back in 2007. It was a weird attack from the Liberals, wasn't it, trying to paint uh, Anthony Albanese and I guess his colleagues by extension as being inexperienced and yeah. never having held a, an economic portfolio, yeah. which was ridiculous given his role as uh, well, infrastructure. definition, if you're the leader of a party and become Prime Minister, how is the critique that you've never been Prime Minister before a critique? I mean, it's, it's one of those absurdities that... Uh, political journalism in Australia has let run as political analysis uh, and it's more a commentary on those who say it and write it and give it validity than it is on objectively what's actually happening out there. I want to talk to you about uh, the future of labour, I mean the future of work in Australia in a moment because I know you're deeply passionate about that as I am, but just your take on the way the election was covered. We've, you've mentioned it a few times in media in this election campaign. I mean, you've fronted media conferences in all sorts of circumstances, you know, year in, year out and throughout elections. I was shocked by the way yeah. that it was. Were you shocked? Absolutely, as was Laura Tingle, the uh, president of the of the parliamentary press gallery. Um I've never seen anything like it. I, I, I saw shades of it in Bill Shorten's last campaign mm. and some of the culprits in that campaign came back bigger and worse in this campaign. The behaviour of some of the travelling press was incredibly unprofessional, reminiscent really of, of what's going on in the United States in organisations like Fox News. It was absolutely un, unprofessional. Large sections of it were driven by the government's agenda and it was designed to destabilise the opposition. And uh, I hope lessons are learnt from it. I fear not. But Labor won in the face mm. of having a significant section of the press gallery campaigning against it alongside the government. You know, we've put up with the fact that, you know, the Murdoch empire has now become, you know, essentially an integral part of conservative politics in this country, along with Sky News. Uh, and we have to fight them all at once. But then to have journalists in open press conferences just behave openly in a partisan way tells us that there's a very fundamental problem in political journalism in this country. So we're heading into another Labor government, and like you in 2007, you didn't have any sort of honeymoon because the global financial crisis crashed into you, and, of course, uh, you rose to the challenge there in a way that the country is still uh, reaping the benefit from. But this new government is facing a different but a challenge of a similar proportion in terms of the economic headwinds that it's facing. Of course, the problems are so monumental. I don't want you to comment on the specifics of it, but how do you start to even, as a treasurer, prioritise what needs to be done? What's the process you've got to sort of think through to work out, you know, how do I get stuff done, given there's so many competing demands? Well, the most fundamental objective has to be to secure quality growth, which delivers the wages and working conditions and the opportunity that drives spending in the economy to continue to, to deliver over time quality growth. And the headwinds are substantial. We've got inflationary pressures domestically in the economy. We've got an international inflationary spiral on our hands and global supply chain problems which are dislocating uh, businesses uh, internationally and nationally. We've got a tremendous expansion of fiscal policy, both domestically and internationally, which 
will be part and parcel of that story of inflationary pressures. And we've got uh, an enormous build-up of government debt, which in itself has the potential to um, destabilise future growth. With the size of those problems becomes the size of the challenge and the size of the potential opportunity. Mm. And I happen to think there's a, a very big opportunity for Australia. I take a very optimistic view about uh, our economic future, drawn from our location in the world, and now also from the abundance of renewable energy we have in this country and the role that it will play, both domestically and internationally, in, in securing economic recovery as we go forward in an environment where we have to dramatically reduce fossil fuel emissions. Australia is incredibly lucky to have such an enormous potential supply of renewable energy, which we can use domestically to engage in cheaper production, to re-industrialise in some sections of, of manufacturing industry, that it becomes that transition, if you like, from fossil fuels to renewable energy is in fact going to become a core of the economic agenda as we go forward and secure future growth with quality jobs, well-paid jobs, and decent profits for business. So that new green economy, in a sense, offers a chance for an economic reset when it comes to jobs and secure jobs and secure work after 10 or more years of an environment where insecure work, labour hire, these really pernicious elements have sort of crept into our industrial relations system that have driven down wages and uh, and uh, entitlements for workers. And, you know, from our perspective, say from the ACT, from the, uh, from the Australian Union's perspective, this is really important because yeah. we see working people being increasingly living in what I call the trapdoor economy. They're just one bad economic circumstance away from falling into real distress. Is that going to be hard to correct or is that going to have to be a, a fight that we're just going to have to have? Firstly, we have to secure strong growth to secure employment for all. And secondly, uh, and I would argue this really passionately, the quality of the jobs that that we deliver are just as important as the quantity of the jobs that we deliver. And the spending that comes from the quality jobs is very important in delivering future growth. So So it's a cycle. so So it's a cycle. But what gives us the opportunity for that cycle to become virtuous for us is that just as we secured with fossil fuels over the past 30 or 40 years was an enormous export industry and a return to the country from the export of those fuels, we're going to be able to underpin growth in this century uh, with the the same emphasis on on renewable energy and the role that it can play as an input into production domestically and as an export for this country, uh, securing valuable dollars and underpinning our future prosperity. So I'm pretty optimistic about all of that. But I'm also optimistic about the future labour market because the economic good that comes from giving someone a decent, secure job with decent wages and and working conditions is going to be more readily apparent in this era than it was in what you would call the old neoliberal era of trickle-down economics, where the notion basically was that if uh, if you gave a tax cut to the top end of town and their profits increased, that would drive jobs quality jobs and income for workers. And what we've seen is the profit share go up and the wage share go down. As we go forward from here, if you like, we're in a period where the profit share is at a record high, the wage share is at a record low. We've got the opportunity to uh, reduce that imbalance for a variety of reasons. And the principal one is, is that people like you and I, 
uh, are baby boomers and um, the baby boomers are starting to exit the workforce. So the supply of labour, both domestically and internationally, is going to be somewhat less than it has been in the last 20 or 30 years. So the bargaining power, naturally, of working people is going to increase as the supply of labour is decreasing given the retirement of the baby boomers. The other structural factor that's occurring in the global economy is that over the last 20 or 30 years, this neoliberal period where, you know, pressure on wages have been down, profits going up, uh, is that wages in the developing world have been going up. The comparative difference that has driven, if you like, so much of the undermining of working conditions in the developed world by the lower pay levels and lower conditions in the developing world, that gap is closing. So those two things combined, uh, I think, can well bring an era where the bargaining power of labour is somewhat stronger and the need to more fairly share the product of the economy between profits on the one hand and labour on the other is going to become an economic imperative, which in itself will drive growth and bring a virtuous cycle of investment. Because I think the pandemic showed to many people that the the jobs that people have been doing, vital jobs, essential jobs, were casualised, were people working in crucial roles, everyday roles, that they didn't offer them yeah. a, a pay packet with entitlements. Well, and I think pandemic, it's shifted, it shifted. It did, well, the pandemic gave lie to the notion that the most important and valuable workers in any company were the people that sat on the top floor <laughs> of the building, uh, the CEOs and their executive teams. The pandemic taught us that some of the most important and valuable workers in our country were some of the most low paid, vulnerable workers in some of the most insecure jobs, in some of the most insecure industries, which suddenly turned out to be some of our most important industries. So it's, it's forced a rethink uh, of so much of that neoliberal ideology that drove so much of public policy and private wealth. So as we head into the uh, next couple of years, a, a lot to do economically, but also some important stuff beyond economics as well. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart is one of those things. And, and that's a journey that uh, this Labor government's going to take us on. How important is it to, that that actually be realised for the maturity of the country and for the, for the well-being of Australia, you know, for future generations? Well, I think it. Um, I think the importance of that is now far broader than just the public debate of those that have been interested in these issues in recent years. ESG questions now go to the core, not just of what government does, but what any large private institution in this country does. The whole nation of, of a degree of uh, quality of opportunity, not just in terms of income, but in terms of diversity and, and, and gender and, and so on, is now fairly and squarely on the agenda. And if you sit around the board of any company or, or for that matter, super fund these days, they are always considering when they take their decisions, what are the implications, not just for our returns, but for the diversity of, of our workforce, of our consumers and so on. So I think there's a much more broadly based um, movement, which in itself is a repudiation of the whole neoliberal era, which basically says that achieving progress on ESG issues is a driver of income, a driver of uh, standing in the community and and a facilitator of increased profit. Superannuation was something that I know that Labor governments have protected over a long period of time and take great pride in, like the union movement in establishing superannuation and and decent retirement for working people. There was a continued attack on superannuation over the last few years. The government opened it up during the pandemic for people to draw down their super and steal from their their retirement. There was an attempt to try to use superannuation uh, in the last election campaign to be a, a basis on which you could buy a new home. 
How important is it that superannuation is continue to be protected? And, you know, someone who's been involved in the uh, macroeconomic and the important decisions in this country over the last 20, 30 years, just remind people what sort of dividend it has provided working people over that period of time and how it's changed people's lives that they've had access to their superannuation. Well, it's been enormous, and I have to declare my interest here. I'm the chair of CBUS. (laughs) So um, uh, CBUS represents uh, some of the lowest paid workers, some of the most insecure categories of of work. So you're in CBUS, you're more likely to be on a lower income than a higher income. Your work is more likely to be insecure rather than secure. So the the advent of super, which was driven by CBUS originally uh, and great unionists like Tom McDonald, Uh, who sadly passed away uh, some months ago, was to deliver for some of our lowest paid, most insecure workers, the prospect of security and dignity in retirement. And the pillars of that system in recent years have been under severe attack by the coalition, whether it's their attack on the increase in delaying the increase in the SG, which would deliver the adequacy that people require in retirement, or whether it was the attack on preservation, which during this election campaign emerged when they decided they were going to let people withdraw money, say, to buy a first home, which would in fact dramatically decrease the funds available to them in retirement. Those attacks from the Conservatives on the pillars of the system need to be exposed in terms of their destructive capacity for what has become probably Australia's most significant economic asset our pool of superannuation savings is bigger than our economy. It is... Extraordinary thing, isn't it? It it is, and it has been absolutely essential to our economic success in the last 20 or so years. Super funds recapitalised businesses during the global financial crisis and were an essential economic balance during that time. They did so again during the whole COVID uh, episode. Superannuation is a nation-building pool of funds that will secure the wealth of this country well ahead of just about any other advanced democracy in the Western world. And to think that the Conservatives could be so reckless and foolhardy as to try to dismount particularly its preservation, because the secret is these funds are locked away and that's what delivers the quality and the level of income required in retirement that they could continue to do that is something that we've got to really deal with, I think, over this next three or four years. I think it gives the superannuation and industry breathing space, free of the attacks from Conservatives, to work harder at arguing the case for superannuation overall and finding new institutional settings to ensure that it can't be fiddled with in the future. Why do they hate it so much? Is it because workers' capital actually gives workers a say in the way the economy runs and we're, we're not staying in our lane? <laughs> they, they hate it basically because they dislike the, uh, the twin foundations on which it is built, which is a proportion of workers' wages go to savings and that is incentivised by tax cuts. And when it comes to Conservatives, they're always trying to reduce wages and they're always trying to reduce tax. So attacking superannuation is actually in their DNA because they want usually want lower wages and less tax. This neoliberal idea that somehow lower wages and less tax produces growth, which of course it doesn't. In fact, it does the reverse. So the very foundations of the system go to the core of their Trumpian ideology these days. And um, the most pleasing aspect, I think, of the Australian election when seen in its international context is that 
this election was a decisive defeat for the Trumpification of the Liberal Party of Australia that we have seen progressively from Tony Abbott's prime ministership right through to Scott Morrison's prime ministership. There's a brief sort of interlude in that where Turnbull pretended he wasn't Trumpian but still <laughs> had Trumpian-type policies in some areas. It was a, a complete rejection, if you like, of Trumpian ideology and the pleasing thing, I think, from Labor's perspective is that um, we did win the economic debate and they were not successful in waging a culture war to obscure the essence of the economic debate and economic program that we were putting forward. Because the challenge for social democratic parties, not just in Australia and around the world, is to win the economic debate, to win the battle of economic ideas and defeat the culture wars mm. that the Conservatives constantly drag across the debate to camouflage the inequality which is built in to the economic program they run. Just to finish, you've known Anthony Albanese a long time and uh, you had to. Uh, it's been a long road to the Prime Ministership for him, but you get the sense that this is an opportunity for him to to blossom. It's going to, we're going to see him at his finest here. What do you think he brings to the job that's right for this moment? Well, he, he, he brings to the job uh, a variety of qualities. And, and one is that he is an Australian who grew up in modest circumstances and has done well throughout his lifetime, but doesn't forget where he came from. And that's pretty important because this is a country which has been built on the hard work of, of millions of people who aspired to nothing more than a decent wage, a decent education, a decent healthcare system, and didn't need to ask for more or, or expect that their, their circumstances should be attacked by those who are seeking to enrich just a few. So he comes from that classic Labor background, classic Labor aspiration that if you work hard and society provides opportunities, you've got a responsibility to give back mm. to your society. Secondly, an enormous amount of experience uh, and knowledge. Knowledge of the parliament, knowledge of the major actors uh, in the society uh, and, um, and in the economy. Much more qualified than, than anyone who would uh, sit on the Liberal Party um, front bench almost at any time in the last decade or so. He knows Australian society, he knows the major actors and he knows where he's come from. That's a pretty good combination. Just to finish, we're in your library here uh, in, in your home and I know you're a, a, an avid reader. Give us a sense of what you've been reading lately. What's, what's... Oh, you should, I've also got a few photographs up there. <laughs> should we go around the room? There's a, there's a photo up here of the great man Goff. There is, yep. And I just wanted to <laughs> remind you that uh, this year will be the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's election in 1972. To all of us uh, baby boomers of that generation, <laughs> the great man uh, changed our country and put in place a set of political and economic objectives which still resonate today. And then over there, you've got a picture of uh, Julia Gillard and myself doing a, doing a press conference, which I think is a reminder of how Labor governments, even in difficult political conditions, can actually put in place big reforms that change a country forever. It's a bit of a reminder that uh, a political life is an honourable life, yep. both Gough and, and Julia, and an honourable political life can change a country. And over here, is that, uh, is that a young Kim Beasley I spy in the corner there? It is, yeah. It's a young... It's a young <laughs> and an even young younger, Wayne <laughs> younger Wayne Swan when I was first elected in, um, in 1993. And, and the great man, Mr Beasley, I'm going to catch up with him in the next week or so. So one of the great things about the Labor movement is that we have 
so many of these great characters who are still around and active. I often think that we don't do enough with those, and there's plenty in the union movement, you know, whether it's Bill Kelty. I was reminded of this the other day at the Tom McDonald's funeral, or, mm. or Dave Noonan, or... We've got so many people who have spent so many years in public life and we, we need to find richer ways of actually getting them out there and, and talking to the next generations about why the Labor movement and the Labor Party are such an important institution, not just in the political system but in our society. Because what the Conservatives have succeeded in doing in recent years is completely demonising public mm. life. Their whole purpose is to demonise public life so taxes are lower, wages are lower and the few benefit from the bounty of the country. Such a rich story to be told by these people of all of the, the debates and policy challenges and political conflicts, why we have them. We have them so we can be a prosperous social democratic country where everybody gets a fair go. In doing that, we enrich the whole country, not just a few. And just to finish, we do have uh, the the famous newspaper banner from the Australian World's Greatest Treasurer above your desk as well. Who would have thought that the Australian would celebrate a Labor treasurer? That seems like a million years ago. It was a brief and fleeting moment of madness <laughs> at the Australian, and whoever did it was probably shot at dawn. Um, and, and I said to Jim Chalmers the other day that I'm, I'm sure he'll receive the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he should hold his breath on that. Comrade, great to catch up with you again, and I really appreciate you having me in your home for a conversation. Okay, great to be with you. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. There he is, the great, the one and only Swanee, Wayne Swan, former Treasurer of Australia, Deputy Prime Minister and still National President of the Labor Party, in his element at home in Brisbane in his study. Give me a bit of a tour of uh, his memory lane on the walls there, which is great fun. Thank you to Wayne and his family for inviting me into their home for that conversation. Always love catching up with a great man. Uh, that's it for this week's edition. Hey, if you can give us a rating, we love it. Uh, it certainly helps other people find the information and inspiration. So on whatever platform you're on, uh, just give us a rating and uh, help us bump up the charts and just tell your friends about the podcast. You can always email us as well at otjpodcast at protonmail.com, otjpodcast at protonmail.com. And that's it for another edition of On The Job. We'll catch you next time.